1988, a song came out entitled, Dear God. It's a blistering complaint against God. I've got to be honest, it's raw, brutally honest, uh, irreverent. And as a Christian, I listened to the song and it rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, the writer makes complaints to God that, like I said, they're just brutal. And yet, as I compared the song, Dear God, to certain psalms in the Old Testament, I realized the Dear God song was tame in its complaints. You see, in Scripture, God provided his people with raw and brutally honest words, which God's people are encouraged to pray. And we pray these when we are in pain. We pray them when we are confused, when we do not understand what God is doing. Now, such complaints are called laments, and the Bible is full of them. Many scholars, in fact, say that nearly 40% of the book of Psalms are songs of lament, and most of them are written by David, the man after God's own heart. So through David's example, we discover that laments, they can be a godly way to pray. And yet, as Americans, lamenting seems to be a waste of time. Uh, we believe it's better to ignore what we feel. We believe it's better to just simply move on and get over it. But it appears God thinks that lament is a good idea. As a good and gracious Heavenly Father, He knows that the act of lamenting, it may heal our broken souls and our broken world. What is it about lament? That gives its healing power. Why does God encourage us, in fact, invite us to lament? Why did David spend time writing beautiful, haunting psalms of lament? Why did David order his people to take up, to memorize, and recite this prayer of lament that we're going to study this morning? What makes lament powerful is that it deals honestly with grief and loss. Now, we've discussed this before, but uh, you could divide the Psalms into three categories. Category one, orientation. It's the times when you feel like you belong with God, that you're adjusted, happy, that you're filled with praise. It's the good times. But then there's disorientation. The bottom of life falls out and you feel sad, lost, hurt, and you wonder, where is God? And where am I going? It's disorienting. But then there's reorientation. You've been through the disorientation, the loss, the hurt, and now you've come through on the other side and you're reoriented, ready to move forward. Well, laments are in the disoriented category of prayer, where faith seeks to understand what God is doing because life just doesn't make sense. If I can promise you anything, it is that life will disorient you. You will feel pain and loss. You will feel grief. You will lose big things, and the grief will suddenly stab your heart with an ocean of pain. Maybe it's abuse, death, divorce, trauma, infertility, betrayal, the death of a dream. These are all oceans all of us will swim in at some point. In our text this morning, David is experiencing disorientation caused by grief. And our story begins in 2 Samuel chapter 1. 
as David and his soldiers return from a major military victory. Now, after David has rested for two days from battle, a young man arrives in his camp, and this man's clothes are torn, and his head is covered with dust. I've just escaped from the Israelite camp where King Saul was, the young man says breathlessly. The Israel's warriors fled from battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan, they are also dead. This news struck David's heart like a dagger. You see, Jonathan was David's best friend. Their friendship was so deep that they promised each other to care for the other friend's family for as long as they both lived. And now, David must keep that promise. Then there's Saul. Saul is Jonathan's father. He was the king of Israel for 40 years. And though Saul went mad and even tried to kill David on numerous occasions, he was still king. He was still God's chosen instrument to rule his people. And because of this, because he was king, David had a high regard for Saul. And now they are both gone, disgraced by the Philistines. In fact, they cut off Saul's head and they nailed the rest of his body to a wall. It is in response to the death of Saul and Jonathan that David writes a song of sorrow, grief, lament. Let's look at David's song, song of sorrow in 2 Samuel 1, beginning with verses 17 and 18. It says this, And David lamented. David mournfully chants. The sound would have made the hair on your arms stand up because of its eeriness. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and David, Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. It appears David immediately puts pen to paper to write this lament after receiving word of Saul and Jonathan's death. And what's interesting is in verse 18, David commands this song of sorrow to be taught, memorized, and sung out loud by the people of Israel. It forced me to ask the question, why? Why would it be important for a song of lament to be sung by future generations? Why remind God's people of a grief, grief that happened before they were even born? Let's see if we can find an answer to that question in verses 19 through 25. It says this, your glory, underline that phrase, we'll come back to it in just a moment. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your highest places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not to Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, these are Philistine cities, lest, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Now, leather shields would be oiled before battle, and Saul's will never be oiled again. His role as a warrior for God, it's come to an end. Look at verse 22. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the 
bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the swords of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Verse 24, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet? Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel? How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Now, I think the opening words of verse 19 show us why generations were to sing this lament for Saul and Jonathan. When it says your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, we have to ask the question, who? Who is Israel's glory? Well, it's the king and the prince of Israel, Saul and Jonathan. You see, with their death, Israel's majestic might, their honor were brought down, which is a big concern for David. David doesn't want the Philistines to hear about the death of Jonathan and Saul. Why? Well, as verse 20 shows us, if the news reaches the Philistines, Israel's enemy would celebrate in the streets for weeks, and they would publicly mock not only the nation of Israel, they would also mock their God. You see, the Philistines still remember the story of David beating their champion warrior, Goliath, uh, just a decade earlier. Remember, though, though just a boy at the time, David went to battle with Goliath. Why? To protect the reputation of God. Remember what David said to the Philistines when he faced Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, 45-47. Then David said to the Philistine, You, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's the idea of taunting, of being disrespectful of God. Verse 46, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead, I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He's saying that the world may know God Almighty fights for Israel. Verse 47, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see, God's reputation among the nations was to be protected by God's people. So David went into that battle with Goliath to protect God from being shamed by Saul's defeat. Well, now, after Saul's death, David once again desires to protect God from being shamed by the Philistines' killing of King Saul in war. Now, on the surface of this song, it appears to be a public relations campaign to make Saul look good. However, it is really all about God, the God who made Saul mighty, despite the fact that Saul had many failures. But even in his might, the text now says the mighty have fallen. You see, David writes this lament to teach God's people to grieve when Israel's failure is a threat 
to God's reputation. And now there's a second loss that David grieves over in this text. It is the loss of a friend who loved sacrificially. Listen to how the lament ends in verses 25 to 27. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. You see, David puts a spotlight on Jonathan. Now you may remember in 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 20 that Jonathan made a covenant with David and swore his allegiance to David. And when Saul's jealousy filled him with murderous thoughts, it was Jonathan who helped David escape. And we even read this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 17. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for David loved Jonathan as he loved his own soul. That's friendship. Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, the young man next in line to be king, yet out of his love for David, knowing God chose David to be the next king, Jonathan sets aside his right to the throne of Israel and pledges his allegiance to David. No wonder David proclaims that this kind of sacrificial love is better than romantic love. And this is why David grieves deeply over his friend Jonathan's death. In this lament, we see Israel grieve over the shame brought upon God by Israel's military loss. And second, we see the sorrow in David's heart in losing a friend who loved sacrificially. We see this practice of lament carry over into the New Testament. Think about the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Matthew 23, verse 37 describes Jesus' lament. It says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathered her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. As Jesus said those words, it would have had the same eerie sound that would give you goosebumps. Can you hear what grieved Jesus in the text? He weeps because God's people suffered from spiritual blindness, from stubborn hearts. The Roman occupation they were experiencing was God's discipline upon them for being stubborn towards God. And so Jesus grieves. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What grieves Paul? He laments because God's people were suffering under a false gospel of legalism. The belief that Jesus plus good works is what gets you into heaven. Uh, the, the, the Galatians were like a child who was being born, but even before birth occurred, there was risk of loss. And it pains Paul as he tries to help them to health. 2 Corinthians 2.4, Paul says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. 
Here, Paul grieves because those in Corinth fell into errors of belief. Uh, They became disloyal to the apostle Paul who shared the gospel with them. In fact, they even became immoral, tolerating ways of the world within the church. And Paul's love for them is so great that his heart breaks for them. Church, I hope we're not so compartmentalized in our faith that we see it as just Jesus and me and that we no longer need to feel brokenness, hurt, and grief over the struggles of the other other people in the church and people having difficulty. I pray our response to pain isn't simply to think, just get over it. As the church, we need to grieve well. We need to learn to grieve for an important reason. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Paul praises God for being, here's what it says, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Notice the two qualities of God mentioned in this verse. The Father of compassion, not the Father of justice or the Father of righteousness. Now, God has both of those traits, but when people are hurting, he is the Father of compassion. In the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, Derek Redman of Great Britain was favored to win the gold medal in the 400-meter race. And as the runners entered the backstretch of the race, Redman was leading the pack, but suddenly he was sent sprawling by the pain of a torn hamstring. You're watching the video right now. As Redmond lay there helpless on the track, the runners blew past him, and he struggles to get to his feet, and he's in excruciating pain, and he begins hopping towards the finish line. Oh, you could see it in the crowd. They agonized for the young man. And suddenly, a figure bounded out of the stands, pushing past the security guards. It was Derek's father. And he ran onto the track, and he threw his arms around his son. And choking back his own tears, he whispered, Come on, son, let's finish this together. And the crowd cheered and they wept as the older man helped his injured son down the stretch and across the finish line. Derek's father, filled with compassion for his son, came alongside his hurting son and filled Derek with strength. As a disciple of Jesus, as a church, are we known for having compassion that fills others with strength? That is what our Heavenly Father brings us to get, through, to get us through our difficulties. But God's compassion does more than get us through difficulties. Uh, look at the text again in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Along with compassion, the text says, God is also a comforter. What exactly is comfort? Well, the word appears nine times in verses 1 through 11 and 29 times in the whole book of 2 Corinthians. Comfort must be an important word for the church to understand. Now, we tend to think of comfort as something that makes us feel better, uh, like our favorite food, uh, a shoulder to cry on. Like someone telling us that everything is going to be okay. And we think of comfort as being soothing, that it eases our pain, it relieves our distress. So when we call something comforting, we usually mean that it makes us feel 
better. But that's not what Paul has in mind. The word comfort in the Bible has more to do with strengthening than soothing. It doesn't just relieve our pain, it stiffens our resolve. The Greek word means to help by giving courage, to help by giving courage. Comfort, according to the Bible, it's not about feeling better, it's about feeling stronger. David Garland puts it this way, I love this. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. The comfort that God provides the church is one of courage and strength. Anyone in need of that this morning? So why does God show us compassion? Why does God come alongside us to encourage us? Well, yes, it's true. He comes alongside us to help us endure the difficulty. We just spoke about that. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that it's also, here it is, so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see, comfort is not something you can order on Amazon. It's not something that you can find at the bottom of a beer bottle. It's not in a, found in a large bank account. It's not found in a one-night stand. Comfort is a state that someone brings you. Comfort only arrives when one person comes alongside another person to give them courage in the Lord. To give them courage in the Lord. As Christians, we need to comfort others. But we also need those who comfort us. Do you have those relationships in the church? When things go tragically wrong in life at 2.30 in the morning, do you have the Christian friends who not only ease your pain, but give you courage in the Lord? In fact, try this exercise. Can you name three people in your life not related to you who speak courage in the Lord into your soul? Find them because you're going to need them. So we experience comfort from God so we can be trained to comfort others in their difficulties. In Proverbs 18, verse 21, it says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You see, the way we give courage to others is through our words. Words are that powerful. They give life, they give death. In fact, if you were to ask your spouse, your friends, your children, your co-workers, were my words death or life to you this week? What would they say? In fact, what do you need to change so your words give life to others? Besides being uh, speaking courage into people's lives, if the church is going to be like our Heavenly Father, we need to create space in our lives to be with broken people. If you want to be in on what God is doing in the world, go where God is giving compassion and comfort. Go to a nursing home. Go to a shelter for battered women. Go to Souls Harbor or Watered Gardens and be with broken people. Go to the home of a foster family, the house of a widow, or the home of a disabled person. God is giving hope and courage there. When you hear someone is having a difficult time, be on their doorstep and ask, 
Would you like a listening ear? May I pray with you? Let me ask you a couple of questions. What holds you back from being a compassionate Christian who looks for opportunities to encourage the struggling? And here's a second question. What needs to change? What needs to change so you can be more intentional in giving comfort to struggling people? Now remember, comfort is not about helping people feel better. It's about helping them get stronger in Jesus. May we comfort each other with the hope we have received from the God of all comfort. This psalm was written for the dedication of the temple in Israel. But strangely, it sounds like the psalm is describing an individual. And that's because the psalmist's personal story of suffering mirrors Israel's national story with her temple. The psalmist called out to God and was lifted out of certain death. Israel, too, was lifted out of their death in Egypt after calling to God for help. The psalmist's escape from death was kind of like a resurrection. In the same way, Israel's exodus from Egypt was like a corporate resurrection from the dead. The psalmist was made solid like a mountain by God's presence and favor. Israel, too, experienced God's favor and presence on an actual mountain called Sinai. But the psalmist sinned and it seemed God's anger would make his presence go away from him. Well, Israel also sinned at Mount Sinai with their golden calves, and God's anger put his presence on the line. So, the psalmist begs God to save him, challenging God to consider if his death will bring God any praise. Israel, too, through Moses, challenged God to consider if their dying at Sinai would give God any praise as well. Graciously, God answers the psalmist's request, and turns his wailing into dancing. God also answered Moses' request and brought his presence into the tabernacle, Israel's first temple. Like the psalmist, their mourning was turned into dancing. Now, all of this proves one main point, which stands in the center of the psalm. God's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Psalm 30 pictures God's presence filling the temple like a person rising from the dead. But what can only be a metaphor in this psalm becomes true in Jesus. And that's because Jesus is God himself, the perfect combination of the localized presence of God and an individual human. That's why Jesus compared his own death to the destruction of the temple. Like the psalmist and Israel, Jesus cried out to God when faced with certain death. But unlike the psalmist and Israel, who were saved even though they sinned, Jesus went all the way to the grave even though he was sinless. All the anger against the sins of the psalmist, Israel, and the world, the sins that put God's presence on the line, was experienced by Jesus on the cross. But Unlike the psalmist's and Moses' challenge that death would not bring God praise, 
Jesus earns God praise from the grave. The temple of Jesus' body was lifted up when he was raised from the dead. So now, anyone who calls out to Jesus, like the psalmist cried out to God, can be raised from the dead as well. Their mourning will be turned into dancing. God's anger only lasted for a moment on the cross so that we can experience his favor for eternity. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see the God who raises the dead. And may you also see Jesus as the one who went into the grip of the grave to raise us up into eternal life with him.